Well, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, depending on where you are in the world and what time it is when you're tuning in. This is Perrin Desports, and I'm your host for the Group Practice Accelerator podcast from Polaris Healthcare Partners. If you're an entrepreneurial dentist or other healthcare provider, and you're interested in building a successful group practice, you found your primary resource for some of the industry's best business education. My partner, Dwalker Sinha, and I have decades of experience helping people just like you launch, scale, and ultimately exit successful group practices. In short, we create clarity, confidence, and results. Welcome everyone once again to the Group Practice Accelerator podcast. This is an episode I have been looking forward to recording for quite a while now, and I think you're going to enjoy it. I'm going to be joined on the show today by the founder and CEO of iSmile, an orthodontic group in the Northeast, Dr. Steve Giannusos. He is a client of ours and an unbelievable founder and CEO. He's also a really great guy and he likes good food, but that's probably for another episode. Suffice to say, this is gonna be one that you wanna take some notes on. Get your pad and pen ready for another cup of that wonderful meal of coffee. The Group Practice Accelerator podcast is on the air. Well, welcome everybody once again to the Group Practice Accelerator podcast. You know me, I am your host, Perrin Desports. My partner, DeWalker Sinha, and I enjoy hosting these shows together sometimes. I do a lot of them by myself, as you well know. But today we have really one of our favorite people that we've ever had the opportunity to work with. And I don't say that lightly, Dr. Steve Giannuzzos. He is the founder and CEO of the iSmile Orthodontic Group. He is a wonderful orthodontist, an incredible CEO, and has um, a, a an interesting journey, I'll preface it and say, for the audience today. This is going to be a ton of fun. Steve, thanks so much for joining me on the show today. I really appreciate it. Perrin, thank you for having me. Really appreciate this. This is an honor for me. and just want to send a uh, message of Warm wishes for the holiday season for everyone, no matter what you celebrate. Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, Happy Kwanzaa, and a happy and healthy new year and beyond to everyone. So thank you very much. It is a great, great pleasure to be on with you today. Well, you're you're a, a true gentleman um, to give us some of your time. You're a busy guy. You're uh, a moving and grooving entrepreneur for sure. And, and this is like I prefaced in the intro um, really an, an interview that I had been um, waiting with bated breath on. Um, you're, uh, you've uh, tried a, an incredible path, and I think you have um, a wonderful opportunity at hand. And knowing you like we do and, and what you have in the coming years, this is, uh, is going to be a ton of fun, probably one that we actually could do multiple episodes on. Why don't we, why don't we crank up the engine, Steve, and just let you give a little bit of uh, some of the history and context behind your business and your, and your personal background for our audience. Probably a good place to start. Thank you. Thank you very much, Karen. Okay, I'll make this quick. I tend to be a little bit verbose, but I understand we only have, what, seven hours for this podcast? Yeah, exactly. This is a full day episode. You know, so it'll be a trilogy, Steve, right? We'll break it up into three sections. I love it. I love it. All right. So I'll make uh, some of this stuff quick and I think what's probably going to be most interesting to the listeners is going to be the stuff that's most closely related to the business component of it, no matter what area of healthcare they're in, whether it's dentistry or not. Um, I, as you know, my real name is Evstafios Giannuzzo, so we just say Steve, it makes it much easier. Uh, I was actually born in the States, but spent a good chunk of my young life in Greece. I was educated in Astoria, Queens where I was born, uh, raised for most of my life. And um, interestingly, did not leave the home in Astoria until uh, I was in dental school, in residency and married. So uh, very, very classical Greek boy kind of a story. Um, the reason I was fascinated with education first and dentistry in particular is, is very specific to my upbringing. And so first of all, in the Greek community, you are education is very much encouraged. Uh, it's a given. It doesn't matter what line of industry or work the family is in, and and how wealthy a family might be. You are considered to be not successful unless you've really 
maximize your ability at education. In fact, famous saying is, you know, get your degree, put it in your desk if you don't need it and come work and work in the family business. Now we didn't have a family business. So for me, education was the only option and it was encouraged by mom. Uh, I was raised by a single mom. So um, the reason I was fascinated by dentistry is in, in my home country, in Greece, it's one of the greatest luxuries. Dentistry is not something that people have access to unless they are of, of incredible wealth um, or uh, extra money, which is something, as you guys know, for the last 15, 20 years, n- not much of what's going on in Greece. So um, most of my family had experienced terrible, terrible dental experiences, no access to a dentist. And in fact, in family pictures, they wouldn't even smile. There was something actually I put in my, my um, application, my essay to dental school. And so that's what drove me to dentistry. When I was young, I thought I would per- perhaps pursue medicine. And a very, very wonderful group of physicians in Astoria, Queens, at Astoria General Hospital, where I was born, actually, uh, urged me to consider dentistry. Uh, I did. I pursued it. I spent some time. Back then, it was easier to shadow people and go into hospitals and so forth. And I fell in love with it. And I fell in love with orthodontics. And I knew before I was 15 what I wanted to do. And no matter what, I was going to end up doing it. I was very fortunate. I'll fast forward. Grew up in the inner city. uh, Latchkey kid. Spent time when mom was at work, walking back and forth to school, very close to my home in Astoria. And I I ended up going to college at St. John's University. St. John's Prep, which was a parochial school in Queens and its sister college, St. John's University, the Red Red Storm, actually. And at the time, there was an option, which I didn't know about, to apply to dental school, to do a BS, DDS program, which I found out too late. And so from day one in college, I pursued the dental thing, uh, spent time with my advisors, and did very well, and ultimately got into NYU College of Dentistry four years there and uh, was lucky that my hard work was recognized and, and um, by the right people. And I was able to go right from dental school into ortho training at NYU College of Dentistry, Department of Orthodontics, something I'm very, very grateful for. And then after that, I ended up doing a, a year of a fellowship in craniofacial orthodontics, focusing primarily on kids with clefts and other craniofacial deformities. In orthodontic school, in the residency, I met a good friend and former partner, someone we built a very nice group with over time. Um, And the rest, uh, I guess we're going to get into in a little bit because that's kind of the meat and potatoes of the talk. I started working for myself and for others quite literally before I had my orthodontic certificate. And so I don't know how much you want me to go into that. I think I think I'll pause on that until you tell me. Yeah. And we'll get into those details. Yeah, great. I mean, great personal story. And and I I only knew honestly, I only knew about thirty percent of that. So I'm I'm learning just as quickly as the audience. But it's it, it humanizes a lot of these interviews that tend to get lost in the weeds of you know EBITDA and and debt service coverage ratio and all that other junk. Uh, this is this is much different today. So thank you for for sharing a little bit of that wonderful story. Um, let's talk a little bit, kind of about uh, the beginnings of your business because you and I um, share. A, a, I don't want to say we share a little bit of history, but I, I was in the New York, New Jersey market around the time that you were first starting out. I ran the the branch up there for Patterson, and and one of the interesting aspects of our initial conversation was that um, we talked about business cycles and especially how people are thinking about um, potential recession next year, how deep, how long, um, increase in lending rates. And we're going to we're going to dig into all of that. But you and I kind of rewound the tape. And and for those that are uh, feeling most anxious about where we find ourselves going into potential uncertainty in 2023, whatever that may be, these are kind of 10-year business cycles, and you and I were able to quickly relate back to um, that 
wonderful time of 2008 mm -hmm. 2009 when companies like Bear Stearns and Lehman went under <laughs> you know and and the housing collapse and the uh, financial crisis and what a great time to be living in the the metro New York market right when when Wall Street's literally burning to the ground us, <laughs> right so um that wasn't great, Steve. <laughs> you know what? What was what was kind of your perspective um, being a healthcare professional and entrepreneur and, and starting to build a business around around that general time? Take us back a little bit. So it was a scary time, right? Because we, the group of, of dentists, orthodontists, physicians, veterinarians, the men and women who, particularly in the healthcare field, who were going to college and subsequent to that. Their, their vocational training, whatever that was, all of us were borrowing money at a very high rate. So it's interesting that we're going to be talking about interest rates and 08 and EBITDA and that whole interest rate cycle. Uh, some of my, just as an aside, some of my private dollars that I borrowed while I was in residency, and, and for those who don't know, uh, if you weren't in a hospital residency at the time, because I didn't have the luck of getting into orthodontic specialty when it was being paid for. There was a point in time it was being paid for by the, G, the GME funding, which was the same funding that pays medical residents. And so we had to borrow and it was very expensive. And so some of the dollars that were on forbearance were accruing interest uh, on deferment and, and or forbearance, depending on where you were, at 10, 12, 14, 16%. And so loan rates or loan amounts quickly ballooned past the seven-figure rates. In fact, that's what happened to me. Um, so I finished school in 08, and I, I will disclose to the people listening that I probably still have $250,000 to $300,000 in student loans. However, I was fortunate enough to lock those in at a 1% rate. So it doesn't make much sense to speed up paying those, those student loans. I can use my money for other things. But in that time... It was very difficult to get a job. The men and women who were the people hiring in our field um, were less prone to open up their pocketbook and pay or pay well. And they'd seen their 401k balances shrink and they were unsure about what the next five or 10 years looked like. And many of them were thinking about retiring. So it was a very, very, very difficult time to say the least. And in fact, our business, my business was born out of that. And, and this is what I want the audience listening today to understand. There's a cyclicality, as you mentioned, to the business world in general. And a lot of it has to do with consumer behavior and borrowers and just the way that banks are willing to lend and so forth. And that was a unique time, uh, but so is this current one. And I think we're reliving a lot of the same stuff. So, you know, we know that out of, out of the ashes of some of the best, the biggest fires comes the most fertile ground. And that's what we experienced. You know, we experienced tremendous opportunity. Uh, one of the things we were able to do was get very creative with banks. We were able to have certain things be subordinated either by a seller or a bank because people were willing or unwilling often to take the risk together uh, alone as a bank. So they were forcing some of us to partner. And that's, again, how our business was born. And so I think that while I was afraid then, and I'll share that with the audience, as I'm sure many young men and women are today, knowing now what I know and putting myself back into that mindset, I'm excited about what the future brings. Because this, this little blip that we're going to be experiencing, I think is going to be a phenomenal opportunity. I, I DeWalker and I completely share that outlook. Um, and, and it's not false hope. Um, or, or theoretical positivity. Um, it, it is more of a cyclicality. And it, it's the thing like Steve Jobs talks about in, in his uh, commencement address, I think to Stanford about, you can only connect the dots looking backward, not looking forward. But when, when, you, when you think through some of those connections and you start to understand some level of cyclicality just in general, you you look forward in terms of historical context and the and the potential upsurge that comes out of the stumble in the short term and and i mean i think that everybody wants to talk about what 2023 is going to look like i'd rather talk about what 
2023 through 2025 looks like, because I think that's a completely different conversation. It also sort of transitions into, you know, our, our uh, another topic we talked about, which is this this kind of mindset. You know, it's it's a difference in a mindset when you're talking about investment versus expense, uh, and and specifically if if the coming I don't know one to three years uh, creates the opportunities for expansion like you and I think that it will um, having dry powder the investment mindset and and really improving business and business valuation through some aspect of scale becomes really really compelling do you want to kind of uh, take our audience through sort of the way you're looking at the coming years and and the growth of your business. Yeah, and, and it's it's beautiful how you tie in a couple of because none of these things exist on their own and, and they all affect one another. And just to go back for a moment, you mentioned what Steve Jobs said about connecting dots going back, but that's only valuable if you can extrapolate going forward. If you take some of that and say, okay, well, what were the lessons learned and you know, what were the successes? Where were we lucky? Where do we get an ROL, return on luck? Where do we make wrong, you know, right? Because it's an ROI, which we're going to go into and talk about dollars, but and there's also an ROL. And, and sometimes you get an ROL even on the bad luck, right? Sometimes that opens up a different door. So it is taking those lessons and extrapolating forward. Now, one of those lessons for me, and I'll touch on really a couple of things, the difference between investment and expense um, and the dry powder piece of it, right? Um, which enables scale, right? So if you look at the, the companies that were most successful, whether they be large multinationals <clears throat> or even smaller groups, dental groups and so forth, they were the groups that understood that it was important to continue to provide your product whatever that was, product or service, let the world know you were there. So you had to market, right? You had to maintain and or build your brand and you had to market. Now, uh, the people who I think by and large who were not successful were most often those who looked at things like retention of, of, of human capital, people, right? They looked at that as an expense. I think they realized they failed, right? You needed good people around you. Because if you look at what happens during every cycle and every, whether we're, we're in growth cycles or not, publicly traded companies often buy people, right? They buy a platform and people and they pay a premium for that, right? And so sometimes they write down that business uh, and you'd think that that was a failure, but they recognize the value in the people they purchase and are able to build something bigger and better. So on the issue of, of in investment versus expense. Right now is a time where, as you think about deploying dollars and time as a practitioner, as a business owner, you need to be thinking about the things that are investments. So for example, um, building the right organizational structure, right? Um, a facility that reflects your values, right? Which costs money on the one hand is an expense, but I believe it is an investment because it speaks volumes of you as people walk in to your facility, whether you're selling coffee or selling straight tea, right? And certainly the idea of marketing, right? If you do that in times like the current times, you set yourself up for an exponential growth or the ability to grow exponentially because you assemble the right people, you have the right, uh, the right word going out about who you are, both in terms of the marketing and what people see when they come in. Uh, and again, whether it's visiting your landing page or visiting your physical facility. And that is what enables you to scale, right? Because um, if you are able to look at in things properly as an investment versus an expense, and critically, you have the dry powder. You know, everybody says, here's what I would do if the market got crushed, right? So I can tell you that because I've had this happen to me before, um, I did extraordinarily well in March and April and May of 2020 because I had promised myself that I would never let another market cycle happen, not have dry powder, which I did, 
and not invest. Now, full disclosure, I never thought it would be a 45-day turnaround, right? As as it happened, there was a V, and that's that was that happened for other factors, which maybe maybe could be for podcast seven, eight, and nine that we can go into, right? Because it has a lot to do with monetary versus fiscal policy, the Fed, QE, all sorts of stuff, printing and so forth. But um, but you know, having that dry powder was hugely valuable to me then. And with the help of Polaris um, and some of the things we put into place a couple of years ago, I'm excited about what having dry powder today means for me and for our group. And I'm excited for all over the country for the groups and the men and women who do have it, because I think they're going to be able to capitalize on this moment. I think that's a, a an interesting point there because we've we've known you for quite a while, and this recent capital raise process that we we went through together to um, create a credit facility for you um, it was born out of the uh, the maturation of the relationship of us working together in a, in a consulting capacity, and then being at the underst- us understanding and, and you understanding the right place at the right time to go through the process to unlock potential uh, future growth and and have that ability to draw upon resources. Um, basically, at will for you, you know. And and there are a lot of people we talk about this getting your funding structure straight from from the word go uh and i think it still falls on deaf ears to a lot of people because dentists tend to think about building a group practice the way they went about buying or building their first or second location you know and and the first or second location with a retail bank um that's only going to fund those locations it's because those locations are predominantly built upon the the founder the the dentist the person who's personally guaranteeing the loans the business success is built upon their clinical skills and their ability to get cases accepted that's not what a four to ten to twenty location group the success is based on whatsoever and having the right funding piece in place um, and the ability to access it when you see the right targets um, is is critically important. So can you maybe just talk a little bit about, you know, generally speaking, the capital raise process that we went through together versus the mindset of, of doing it on your own the way you've always done it, you know? Yes, uh, and I actually, um, I, w- I will say this for the audience, that um, the greatest lessons for me are where, where I have failed spectacularly. And so an important piece is because there's a few cliche statements that I think ring true and I, and I want to share with, with everyone here today because, as, as I said, men and women much smarter than me shared this with me. And, of course, I knew better at the time. And it's almost akin to how you are as a child. And as you get older, you realize the wisdom in your parents. So <clears throat> a few things. First is that, that you, when you have a single location, right, or two locations, which a lot of dentists have, a lot of specialists have primarily because it's very difficult to build a full-time practice in the very beginning. And often two or three days is enough to build a nice mature practice that can support you and your lifestyle. And a second location is a little bit of gravy, if you will. But we know that what we did to get to where we are, here's a cliche statement, right? Is not what we need to do to get to where we want to be. So the first thing is, is I think people, and I've done this, I've been guiltier of this than anyone is, is they don't really know where they want to be, right? And so they hope that they'll be able to retire and be comfortable and maybe have free time, but hope is not a strategy. You really have to be strategic about what you do. So um, the second piece, and I'll, I'll just touch on this a little bit and then build on, the, the whole capital raise process and, and how valuable that was and, and what that looks like for me. And hopefully as your listeners look at it through that lens, they'll see the value and they'll understand how important it is and they'll want to do something similar if they have charted a path right going forward. So, so you, you can't do 
what you did to get to where you are, to get to where you want to be, you have to define what that looks like, right? And one of those things is, if you think about how an average dentist, physician, veterinarian, I'm sure a lot of these healthcare providers are listening, we start our day with a morning huddle, very valuable. But all we're doing is focusing on today, literally just today and the fire up today, right? And we never focus on this week, this month, this quarter, this year, the next two or three years. You mentioned the next two or three years. For too long, I felt like I had my head down and I was looking at just the patient on my schedule, the patient in my chair, all of whom, by the way, are very valuable because without them, you have nothing. And that's never, ever been lost on me, right? Every patient who comes in to our practice that we work into or to a group practice that we own, you know, that's what puts bread on the table, so to speak, for all of us. So it's never been lost. But we have to stay focused on a little bit of a longer-term horizon, right? Same way you drive your car. You don't look right in front of you. You look out as far as the eye can see on the horizon. So I think that that's where the mistake is. And people focus on, and I've been guiltier than anyone on this, working in the business rather than on it, right? And so the greatest analogy I can give you is, You can be the most amazing pilot and you can commandeer the most difficult to fly aircraft, but you're only flying and landing one aircraft. You can be the air traffic controller and commandeer an entire airport, right? And I think not to take away anything from the pilot who's who's flying that single aircraft, but you're able to accomplish a lot more very safely for many more people if you are the air traffic controller. And I think that it's very important that we start thinking that way, particularly if we want to grow. Now, having the right partner in that process to consult with and help you is unbelievable. And I think that for for me, Polaris, you, Walker, Aiden, Kyle, your team, uh, JP, they've just been phenomenal. And they've helped me to see things when I let emotion take over, right? And they helped me first to adequately express my vision for today, for tomorrow, for the next two, three years, understand how that vision was tied to operational needs that had to be put into place, and ultimately how that affected the dollars that needed to be raised, that that, that so-called dry powder, right? So that we can scale. And so I'm very excited because as we speak today, uh, I have an unrestricted use, right? Um, I, can't, I can't go buy an airplane. Uh, it's probably better for everyone, especially because I don't know how to fly one. But I have unrestricted use of, that, of those dollars to be able to fix what's going on in my current practices and facilities and buy, buy existing practices or small groups and or build de novo. And because we've built that vision for what the next two, three years looks like, and we can go into that in a little bit more detail, uh, if you'd like, for the, for the listeners, because we've done that, I think uh, I couldn't be more excited than I am. And I don't know if you want me to go into the whole interest rate cycle, because I'm happy to. Uh, I can give some insight for the clinicians out there and, and how I think this is an opportunity but you tell me if you want. Yeah, to. yeah, no, I, I think that's a that's a great sort of transition point, Steve, because you know, let we we talk about dry powder and a credit facility, you know, in kind of grandiose terms, or or, or you know, at some level, it's sort of theoretical for some of our our audience. But you know, a lot of one of the main things that has people, um, you know, kind of frozen in terms of uh, stalling their their growth uh, process is this aspect of a, of a rising rate environment. I mean, you referenced you know, coming out in 2008 and, and what all that looked like from a, a, the, the level that rates were at that point. We've talked at different times on the podcast about, you know, everybody wants to relate today's um, borrowing rates against the 
the <laughs> basically uh, zero cost of funds, you know, right. of, of nine months ago, you know, and, and oh, wouldn't it be great if we reverted back to that? You know, well, we're not going to, and you can make a good case that the, the, the easy monetary policy is what got us into some of this. That's, a, that's probably podcast number nine for us to record. Yeah. But I think the, the key here is understanding if you're going to be a CEO and a strategist, like you just touched on, and you moved out of kind of a task-driven mindset into understanding what you're trying to build and how it's connected to operations, everything you just mentioned, what you're essentially talking about is the ability to draw upon funds and your confidence that if you use the funds appropriately, you will create greater equity value for yourself and your minority partners at a faster rate than any of the cost of funds, even in a rising rate environment, would cost you. And, and I think that, un, that fundamental understanding of equity on balance sheet and just what you're trying to do based on your growth strategy is, is, a, is a critical piece of being an effective CEO. So if you want to kind of dive into that, if that's sort of a setup yes, for yes. you, I'd, I'd love to. Yes. So um, full disclosure, I, I currently have no partners, minority or otherwise. And so I would be, it, it, only because if there's a listener, they might not understand what, what that is. And sometimes you can have a debt partner. Sometimes you can have an equity partner. Sometimes you can be a platform or an add-on business or whatever, and maybe that's podcast number 10. But, um, but currently it's a very simple model. And I think that, that most clinicians who listen can relate to this. There's a credit facility that, by the way, very importantly, could not have been raised, certainly not the dollar amount, nor the process without the help of Polaris. I think I'm a very capable uh, man and clinician. I can tell you that I would have needed two, two and a half years to do that, right? Uh, and I don't think I would have done it well. And I know this because I've done it before for a smaller amount, you know, less than half of, of, of what we did. I did it segmental. I did it in a way that was restricted. I did it in a way that really tied my hands more than it helped me. And I caution our listeners against doing something like that. Your local town bank uh, or many of the big banks simply don't understand you and your needs and they, they just don't and they can't help you and so i just want to just shine a light on how valuable it was to have you and DeWalker and kyle and, and aiden and you know jp and the whole team uh really be instrumental in helping us on that raise okay very 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 important now i think that everyone gets stuck on the idea of the rising rates. Let's talk about rates for a moment. Let's educate our, our listeners. And some of them know this and know this better than me, and you may be uh, very definitely better than me, but we know that there's a little bit of an inverse relationship, right? Between the interest rate environment and prices, right? Generally speaking. So we haven't seen the downturn that we expect, but we think it's gonna happen soon. If we stay in this high interest rate environment and or if rates continue to rise, even at a slowing pace, you can bet your bottom dollar home prices will go down, right? At some point. Now, they're not linear. Uh, the market is often emotional, too emotional one way and too, too emotional the other way. It's so different whether we're talking about buying practices or buying homes. But a lot of the listeners, what is missed uh, to them by them and was missed by me is you can never change your entry costs, your price of buying a home, buying a practice, a group practice, or building it. But if rate, if the interest rate environment changes, right, all of a sudden you can refinance your debt, right? So if you really think about a 10-year term on something or a 20-year term or seven-year term, the probability that in the next three, four years there's going to be a different, likely lower interest rate environment is high. There's no guarantee but it's higher than not, right? And it may move up before it moves down. And so you can refinance a good chunk of that. The question is, what have you done for those three or four years? You touched on, you know, when you build, you know, equity on your balance sheet, right? So am I willing to uh, take a facility that has 
a larger interest rate. Let's let's use a number that a lot of the listeners are going to be uncomfortable with, seven and a half percent, right? Because people were borrowing at, you know, I mean, I, I don't want to get into it, but I borrowed money for 30 years under sub two. I borrowed money on a 25-year AM for a large multi-million dollar real estate deal at sub three with an interest uh, uh, interest rate swap, right? So there's a lot of creative things you can do. But very, very, very simply, even if we're in a seven or or above seven percent interest rate environment, right? The value that we can create for ourselves as individuals, whether we buy one practice or 10 practices, we build one or 10, far outpaces the different the incremental difference in interest. And I think it's very, very, very important for people to understand that, you know. Um, and I think, I don't know if we want to go into EBITDA, but, you know, if anybody who's listening is going to do now what I did when I was listening to podcasts like this 10 or 15 years ago, you know, they'll get on a mortgage calculator on Google and they'll put a million dollars in and they'll put in a 10-year amortization schedule or 15-year or whatever. And they'll plug in 3% and they'll plug in 7% and they'll see the difference in interest. The interest is deductible, of course, Right. If you have a really good accountant and a really good accounting team, there are things you can benefit from as you accelerate certain things that you can depreciate, right? More than offsetting that incremental difference in interest, right? But if you look at the value that you create, right? If you value your business on a multiple of EBITDA, for example, right? I mean, it's not even, a, it's not even worth discussing, right? I mean, in other words, there's no reason to not move forward in this interest rate environment on creating a facility which will allow you to create equity on your balance sheet simply because the rates have changed. The opportunity that you miss over that time is just staggering. People, uh, you're 100% correct because I think too many people stop at the difference between 3% and 7%. And, and what, what their mind tells them right there is it more than doubled. And that's all they, right. they don't, they don't even run the calculator scenario to see on a payment cycle, what's the difference in monthly payments, cash out the door interest that's deductible. If they just went and did that, now they have something quantifiable to lean back against. The next thought would be, if I did buy a practice, is there any way in God's green earth that I could improve the practice slightly enough to create more cash flow to offset the incremental cost of that debt. Can I do that? Well, we all know that the answer to that is yes, especially (laughs) on scale, right? Right. And and very importantly, maybe we should go through a very back of the napkin calculation for our listeners because I think it'll help them. Sure. So, So very importantly, when you scale, the importance of scale, right, is that you have better buying power, um, you really have clear and organized leadership, right? So there isn't this sort of dysfunctional, disjointed operations that happens if you have one or two or three practices. But when the owner doctor is out, you know, the old saying, the cat is away, the mice come out to play, people aren't paying attention, we're not delivering the care, uh, and the quality of experience to the to the patient or whoever it is that walks through our door, right? And so, so as you build scale, right, so can you build efficiency. And even, even, and we've been proof of this, even in an environment where per diems for doctors, where um, the hourly rates for hourly employees have gone up astronomically, we've been able to curtail some of that or most of that in this environment and maintain the same level of profitability without growth. Now, talk about the difference. Here I'm tying in a couple of the things we talked about. The difference between investment and expense. Marketing, for example, right? The quality of the caliber of the person answering your phone or treating your patients with you, whether it be a doctor, you hire, or a staff member. That's an investment, right? Not an expense. And these things allow us to, to not only, again, curtail expenses, but build. And so if you take, and you're, you're the numbers guy, 
if I throw out a couple of quick numbers at you, just so we can run through a very, very, very quick back of the napkin calculation, right? Um, the average practitioner who's going to buy a practice valued at a million dollars, a purchase price of a million dollars, and assume that that, that that price will include some capital, right? So that they can maybe buy a new pan stuff machine, maybe hire some people, maybe put a fresh coat of paint, change some lights. What is on a 10 year, 10 year term, right? If that person borrowed, and let's just say three and a half to 4%, call it 3.75, what would that monthly payment be with principal and interest on a million bucks? I don't know that I can do that on my head, but I can pull it up real quick um, uh, on a simple loan calculator. So on a million dollars, a 10-year term on, um, what was the percent interest rate you said? Sorry. Let's let's make it easy because we talked about doubling. Let's call it three and a half, 3.5. Okay. So when we run that and calculate it, you're on a three and a half percent you're talking about monthly payment of ninety nine. Monthly payment, yeah. yeah. Because that's oh. how we live in dots, especially in North yeah. Carolina, right? Yeah. So ninety eight, eighty eight, fifty nine. Yeah. Is that monthly payment, right? And watch how I think magical and amazing this is. Now, <laughs> I would say take that and put the seven percent interest rate, ten year term. Now, for those who are listening and maybe they're in their car, that payment is. 11610. Okay. Roughly 1700 bucks more a month. Right. right. Cost roughly 1700 bucks more a month. And so everybody's hemming and hawing and screaming about the doubling of the interest rate. Right. And so for the average individual who does this and who walks away from a deal that could be beneficial to them, to the equity on balance sheet, they've walked away from a deal. I'm going to call it 2000 a month, just, just to, to show the difference, 24000 bucks a year, right? And on a 10-year term, in five years, they've spent $100,000 extra, right? Now, um, remember we said that the probability that in three years from now, we would have a lower interest rate environment, right? Three to five is very high, right? Yeah. Where it's going to go, nobody knows. But the probability that you'll be able to borrow whatever is left, and I don't want to bore you or bog you down with looking at the amortization table here, but you know, in five years, it'll be more than 50% because of the way that an amortization schedule works, but you'll be borrowing a lot less and you'll be able to offset that. And you can go back to a 10-year term if you'd like and really, really free up the cash flow. But if you take this practice, even if you don't grow it, even if you add it to your business, right? And Again, very back of the napkin. Let's just say that the, 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 this million-dollar practice has a 200,000 EBITDA, right? Because you're able Reasonable. to incorporate yep. it into your business, right? So the question is, what have you given up on your balance sheet, right? What have you given up in terms of that equity? And it's quite a bit, right? Some people were getting really 10 turns, right? Or, or more, depending on right, 10x multiple on EBITDA, depending on how, how large the revenues of the group were, locations, uh, profit dollar, um, EBITDA percentage, and so forth, right? So without even growing it, you've given up a tremendous dollar amount. And I don't know if that if there's if that makes sense. Or hopefully the listener listening really understands that. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I think, again, we get a bit too frozen in this rising rate commentary um, about the doubling of the cost of funds. I mean, we have a, a say in here at Polaris that, and people have heard me say this on the podcast probably numerous times, you never buy a business to maintain it. You always buy a business to improve it. Correct. And, and if you really, if you get off the, the, what the rate is and the fact that it's doubled in the last handful of months or, or however long, and you just look at initially 
the dollars that that it's going to cost you to acquire that practice and then think through is there any way that i could improve the practice to offset those dollars we're not talking about a whole hell of a lot of improvement here right and, and then when you get into the value of the group that you're building and the value that it's going to be as you continue to build this is a no-brainer and, yeah. and the reason that this is so important right now is because so many of us feel like the coming years, there are going to be more opportunities to execute that growth strategy if you have the dry powder in place to do it. And and that people get frozen by this external commentary around things they can't control. And it's a wet blanket on too many people's aspirations, unfortunately. Savvy business owners use this as an opportunity to expand the business and go full throttle. And I think that's what 100%. we're talking about. 100%. Do I think that, you know, what is it? What does this dollar amount translate? $25,000. And it's not, by the way, right? It's less than that. We've yeah. We've kind of assumed a larger cost of capital, even than the double rate. And most people are not borrowing at seven, um, but again, operating under that assumption. How hard is it to grow the revenue a little bit in this, in this environment to offset that 25,000, yep. reduce the expense or do some combination of the two, right? Which more than offsets that. And so you wouldn't even feel that. And I, what I find is very interesting is that most of us say this, most of us, if we were operating, if this was logic under which we were operating, then why wasn't everybody buying five or 10 practices when rates were three and a half percent? You see what I mean? Yeah. In other words, they apply this logic. I mean, it's, so much of that is your brain trying to convince you what not to do, you know, yeah. uh, and working against you. You're often, you're often negotiating uh, best or worse, really, against yourself. You know, uh, because for the $25,000 differential, you've given up quite a bit on equity on balance sheet. And to your point, you know, we don't buy these businesses to keep them where they are. We buy them to grow them. That's right. It's, we do. you know, we talked, uh, uh, off, off mic, um, about that kind of that playing defense, the bunker mentality versus a growth mindset and playing offense. And I think what you're talking about there is is really the the mindset that you have to impress upon people if you're committed to to you know creating a larger business with whatever the potential outcome is, whether it's exit or operations, it's cash flow or wealth or whatever. But if if it's a growth uh, business that you want to create, there's no way in heck you're going to be able to do that uh, by playing defense and with this bunker mentality. Well, before we wrap things up on today's show, I wanted to preface this by saying that interview with Steve was so good and so lengthy and so meaty, we decided to break it up into two different podcasts. So if you like what you just heard, stay tuned for next week's part two that will finish with a flourish. <laughs> um, I think you're going to like that every bit as much as you like the first part of it. Uh, and there will be more great content to come. Before we segue out of today's show, Two quick things from me. Uh, one, I have a save the date announcement. May 10th, 11th, and 12th in a, at a location in Florida yet to be determined, but we're close. We're going to host um, another uh, larger scale event um, similar to the one that we did in Denver. And this is going to be around uh, the content of building an enterprise level platform. Uh, many of you are on the, the journey to starting a group practice, your one to two to three locations, something like that. Uh, and the scaling from clinician to CEO event that we did in Denver back in October in conjunction with Dr. Mark Costas and the Dental Success Institute was very well received um, for the mindset challenges, trials, tribulations, of those that are in the emerging group space. That being said, those that have already um, committed to the growth strategy and journey to building a group are now having questions around things like, do I centralize a back-end office, an administrative office? 
if I do, uh, what services do I centralize? How do I do that? What about building a call center? Yeah, it's one thing to create financial reporting and cost allocations, but what about an operational DSO? Do I need to do that? Should I do that? If I do decide to do that, what will it look like in terms of the outcome and growth opportunities for the business? And what should I expect in terms of commitment to see this thing through? Well, if that's where your mindset is around building a platform, centralizing operations, building a call center, scaling um, uh, a, a, a culture-driven business, this Florida event is for you. An enterprise-level platform allows you to go from something around five locations to 20 to 25 to 50 locations, if you so choose. And that is the focus of the content around this event we're going to be doing May 10th, 11th, and 12th in Florida. You'll get more information for those that are in the podcast. We get a lot of questions around this. I wanted to get it on your radars as early as I possibly could. May 10th, 11th, and 12th will be that building an enterprise-level platform uh, event that'll probably be around 70 to 100 people. Uh, we're going to focus on five or more locations for the people in the audience, uh, and this will be more tailored content around their journey from five to 50 locations, if you will. So put it on your calendar, block it off, more information to come, limited seating, if this is something that interests you, once you see the announcement about it, probably going to want to pull the trigger on it. That's why I wanted to get it on your uh, your calendars. And speaking of calendars, part two, before we wrap up today, is a note of thanks, gratitude, and happy holidays. I'm not exactly sure when this particular episode is going to drop on the podcast. I think it's going to be the week of Christmas and Hanukkah. Um, and for that reason, whether you celebrate Hanukkah, Christmas, Kwanzaa, or anything else out there, I want to say from all of us at Polaris to all of you in the audience, a sincere word of gratitude and thanks. We are really grateful for all the support so many of you have shown us, our, our former clients, our current clients, and hopefully a lot of future clients. Um, the trust that you put in us is not lost on us. We value it. We appreciate it. We are truly grateful for it. And for those that are in the podcast audience, the times that you give us ratings, uh, five stars, comments uh, on the podcast, when you share the podcast with your colleagues who you think will benefit from it, I don't know who they are. I, I don't get a list of subscribers. Podcasts don't work that way, but I can darn sure see it in the downloads. And when we get several hundred downloads on a random weekend where we didn't release any new content i know that somebody has been introduced to our show they liked what they heard and they went back and they binged everything we've ever recorded <laughs> and and we're grateful for that truly uh we have just turned through another 10,000 uh downloads which puts us well north of to a total of 30,000 downloads since we started this and it grows quickly every single month and it grows because of all of you uh, and we're truly grateful for that so hopefully i've got the timing right in terms of when this episode is going to drop and if i do i wanted to wish all of you from all of us at polaris a very happy holiday season happy new year as you turn into 2023 and we look forward to great things to come for all of us in the new year take care we'll see you on the next episode